0: Hey, welcome back Tap That Easy Podcast. I am your host, Eric Walters. This is the second of two parts to the Nick Butler memoir. I don't know if I pronounce memoir, is how I, I meant to say it and I said it differently. However, it doesn't change the fact of the name of the book it is A Year in Waiting by Nicholas D. Butler, my buddy, my friend, amazing, amazing author, amazing brewer. Nick and I, just to kind of give you a recap, episode 87. uh, Nick was on the podcast along with his dad, who was his brewing partner, and Kevin Binkley. Yes, chef Kevin Binkley was on the podcast at one point, and um, hope to have him on again. He was an incredible guy, really, really, just intriguing uh, story that kind of came out of all of this. So it had been a few years since I'd saw, uh, you know, I'd seen Nick, and he was like, hey, I wrote a book about my experience in early the last year uh, I mean you say it was my experience in waiting you can say it's my experience of commuting to a city two hours north uh, my experience trying to you know keep keep a, a marriage uh, intact during the course of all this incredible incredible book I'm so excited that Nick got me um, asked me to be involved with this so this is just a really great book I can't talk about it more. And it's a short read. It's a short list. And this is part two. And honestly, this is my favorite part of the whole book. So it's engaging. This really takes you into the behind the scenes of what it's what it takes to execute at a high level. Um, And it focuses on fine dining, but I think it can encapsulate many, many different things. So just a really, really great. Great, great chapter, this is my favorite one. This is just one single chapter. Uh, this is defining all the people that are involved in the process that goes into executing fine dining. Uh, it's it's just a really great story, and I, th- I love at the end of the chapter how Nick um, kind of puts his perspective on himself as what he thought his workers thought of him. Uh, just a really great way to end out the chapter. So let's get into this one, but before we do, um, the publisher is actually in downtown phoenix it is on fifth and roosevelt uh, called lawn gnome publishing and bookstore Uh, you can buy the book right there you can go in there's some great breweries some great spots to eat down there so go in there grab yourself a copy of this book it's a great book even the cover is awesome i mean it's just one of those books you like to just really have out so also amazon subscribers they can download a digital copy on their e-readers but just listen to this. I love how Nick narrates this and tells this story and, and it's, I love uh, audiobooks that are read by the author and this is no different. You can really feel the emotion and, and Nick takes you on a ride, especially in this chapter. Uh, the characters that you meet and you kind of get to know a little bit, you get mad at them, uh, you empathize with them. They just, it's, it's a really, really exciting uh, book overall and, and love this chapter. So let's get into it.
1: 5. Experience requires allegiance. During my hiring process, one of the items that our chef emphatically stressed was how he no longer wanted to hire anyone after me. The restaurant staff, by intention, would continue to whittle down like the cast of a horror movie until only the most allegiant remained. When I joined, the sommelier stayed for an extra week to help provide some continuity, but my actual on-the-job training was predominantly left to a 21-year-old undergraduate, the bartender, who had worked at the restaurant in one form or another since he was 16. As a college professor, this was a humbling turning of the tables, but the truth was that our young bartender was incredibly knowledgeable, for anyone's age, thoughtful in the way he nervously walked me through the myriad protocols and genuinely invested in our success as a team. How he knew so much about alcohol only months into his legal tenure was a question I felt better left unanswered. After all, I wasn't the one doing the teaching when it came to business at the restaurant. The Bartender As it turned out, not only was my training supervisor the age of my students, he was actively pursuing a degree at my former university. Hence, the only person who seemed more mystified by my presence than myself was the only person still enrolled in school. In condition to harbor some mild reverence for my academic standing. Thankfully, the novelty wore off quickly as we began wading through our daily checklist of items to accomplish, detailed in chapter six. The bartender made it clear that it was expected that we would arrive fifteen minutes early every day and immediately greet everyone in the kitchen. This seemingly wholesome act initially endeared me to the emphasis of the staff, according to our chef functioning like a family, However, the gesture also served as a practical barometer of how you were functioning at the start of a shift. Were you upbeat? Were you drunk? Were you on something? Greeting the kitchen staff was a way of gauging our utility that day. Regardless of the way you actually felt, it was critical to start the day on a positive note. No one was better at this than the bartender, who struck me as the type of student who participated a lot in class, but might not be doing the amount of work outside the classroom that his activity level, while being observed, seemed to imply. Like so many students I encountered over the past decade, he was pursuing a degree in business. Appearances were important to him, especially at the restaurant. He always had product in his hair and wore sportswear during the day before completely changing for service. His smile and genuine excitement were ideal for hospitality, But his age still carried an air of anxiety when interacting with guests moreover his parents played an active if not overbearing role in his budding career and the restaurant was regularly cited during our training sessions as a point of disagreement between them he wanted to continue learning about fine dining and maybe become a restaurateur but that wasn't practical enough for his parents who were regular diners at the early version of the restaurant like me He was trying to keep a foot in academia, as well as in the service industry, and I could tell that it was taking its toll. I saw a lot of myself in the bartender, and he was genuinely excited to have me join the team. We spent the majority of my first few weeks working side by side, so his seasoned insights gave me the first glimpse of what my impending future held. The skill I most admired in the bartender was his ability to make virtually anything you could dream of to drink. Grasshopper? no problem. Over the top, flaming tiki drink. Sure thing. Half-half, no whip, mochaccino with crumbled candy cane on the rim and a side of Amaro? With our pleasure. Nothing fazed the bartender. Challenges from persnickety guests actually invigorated him. Of his many professional feats of strength, two hours before service one evening, a table of 12 Latter-day Saints guests requested a non-alcoholic beverage pairing for their meal they were willing to pay $50 per guest. Could we do it? Without hesitation, the bartender immediately started crafting a menu and gathering ingredients. In terms of presentation, the end result looked exactly like the entire table was drinking alcohol all evening. For example, a cola and tea infusion served with a hand-carved ice cube looked like an old-fashioned. Eight different non-alcoholic drinks to pair with dinner for 12 guests that required nearly all of our glasses. The execution was flawless and everyone at the table agreed with me. Guests from other tables actually asked what they were drinking and wanted to order a round of the same until they found out they were non-alcoholic. That night I marveled at how gifted and seasoned our bartender was and how much I would have to learn to even come close to his wunderkind level of expertise. The bartender taught me how to use a three compartment sink to wash, rinse, and sanitize dishes. Inventory and stock beverages with their labels face consistently centered like a high-end grocery store. Make cold brew coffee using a three-foot-high Taiwanese apparatus. Divert the espresso machine's steam to also make tea and simple syrup. Master the recipes and techniques necessary for making all the house cocktails on the menu. And, most importantly, how to gracefully leave one's position in the restaurant once you eventually found a worthy if not woefully unenlightened, replacement for your role in the family. As much as I saw the bartender excel, I also witnessed him understandably crack under the pressure of our chef's expectations on several occasions, including one in which he needed to sit down in the bar in a fetal position to steady himself because he dropped two dishes in a row at the same table. Carrying miniature sliders on delicate ceramic dishes across an entire restaurant in one hand and placing them in front of guests without making a sound in a precise position was something no one could do if they thought about it too much. And the bartender had clearly thought about it a lot over his formative years. So it was understandable that by the time Valentine's Day arrived, the bartender, more than likely at the behest of his parents, finally mustered the courage to break away from his long-term relationship with the restaurant And give his two-week notice so he could focus on his studies. From his perspective, I had been trained enough and he had clearly been waiting for the opportunity for a while. It was time to leave the nest and I was grateful for his guidance. In turn, true to our chef's prognostication, instead of hiring another bartender, the GM announced that I was taking over bartending duties for the foreseeable future. In addition, of course, to my main priority of learning the GM's responsibilities now that I had completed my initial training. The GM Familial descriptions of responsibilities in a restaurant are often used to describe the roles one plays in the family business. In ours, the GM played the role of our chef's responsible older brother, someone who was born a decade before, learned from his mistakes, and offered a more level-headed perspective when his younger sibling got ahead of himself. While our chef served as the expert on all things culinary, the GM functioned as our sage of hospitality. Working in restaurants his entire adult life had turned his body into the build of a distance runner and whittled his eyes to sharp points that hid behind his librarian glasses. He reined in his curly hair by keeping it tapered, which came to serve as a metaphor for me of their spirit being bridled by the discipline they deeply required from their work. He always wore suit pants dress shoes, and a button-up shirt in the afternoon before changing into bright, typically contrasting colors for service. Greeting and interacting with guests, properly setting tables and arranging seats, serving and clearing dishes according to etiquette, and hawkishly supervising our discipline were his primary responsibilities during service. However... The GM's daily checklist of tasks went well beyond the scope of the amount of preparations and side work the bartender had trained me to accomplish. Like our chef, the GM had moved to the Southwest in order to be closer to his family, so the sibling analogy holds true. Moreover, he previously worked at the iconic Chef Charlie Trotter's legendary restaurant in Chicago for over 20 years. Edmund Lawler's book, Lessons in Service from Charlie Trotter, which I read for guidance during my early weeks at the restaurant, draws several sections directly from our GM's impressive contributions. Growing from his experience at Trotter's was a badge of honor he subtly reminded us of by exclusively using the wine key he had earned as a floor captain there. Trotter was notorious for verbally and economically abusing his employees, so the GM's exacting standards and expectations for the front of the house readily equaled those of our kitchen. Perfection was his objective and our chef often remarked to guests that without the GM, the restaurant wouldn't continue. The restaurant was their shared labor of love as veterans of the service industry, and as they both freely expressed, it was the final stop on their professional journeys. Hence, training to perform the GM's role came with a daunting amount of professional responsibility and familial duty. Keeping up with the GM was like shadowing a hummingbird— the sheer volume of tasks to accomplish multiplied by the expectation that they all be accomplished perfectly was enough to make the average person start hyperventilating. As a learner, listening to the GM during training was like the adage of drinking from a fire hose. The number of protocols concerning when to do a task, how it should be accomplished, and why it needed to be done precisely in said manner were innumerable. During the time I trained with the GM, I would often describe the experience to friends and family at learning 100 new things a day. He was conditioned to operate in top gear like the BMW coupe he drove, and I was accustomed to driving the speed limit on cruise control, so it took a while to catch up. On the first day that I shadowed the GM, we both arrived 15 minutes early, greeted the kitchen, and immediately went to the office to listen to phone messages. He gave me the number to call for voicemail, shared the password to the computer, And showed me his method of recording notes from the messages into a logbook that would serve as the next checklist after we listened to the 18 messages ranging from a person simply stating their first name and leaving a phone number to three-minute descriptions of each guest who was attending and their acute dining preferences without leaving a return number to call. You learn a lot about guests by the way they conduct themselves before they ever arrive. To complicate matters, the phone was horribly antiquated You could barely hear anything, especially when the vacuum was running, unless you turned on the speaker option and cranked the volume to its maximum. Hence, when guests would rapidly say their name or phone numbers, it would require listening to the message multiple times, which turned out to be the case for virtually every other message. I tried to suggest modernizing the restaurant system by using digital services such as OpenTable or Talk but the tone implied by facilitating a personal interaction with guests was central to the GM's sense of professionalism. Once the messages were recorded, callbacks were conducted in order to answer questions and secure reservations. Often, the requested date was unavailable, so quelling frustrations and rapidly finding acceptable alternatives was of paramount concern. Phone etiquette was to follow a rigorous script that seemed lifted from Downton Abbey, but with a tone of excitement by a guest's interest in dining with us. Answering the messages, not to mention answering the phone throughout the day, quickly became one of the most emotionally exhausting tasks the GM taught me. Hence, the rationale for why messages were attempted to be accomplished first, followed by email, and ultimately postal deliveries. Yes, postal deliveries. Have you ever dined at a restaurant where you felt compelled to write a thank you letter the following day? Our restaurant received them at least once a week, and not to be outdone, we would always reply with our own letter of thanks on official restaurant stationery. After tending to the day's correspondence, the GM would leave the office to review the table and seating arrangements in the dining room, bar, and patio. If a table looked slightly misaligned, he would adjust it. If a chair was placed askew, he would correct it. If there was dust on the base of a table, he would clean it. If a table wobbled at all, he would level it all while muttering under his breath about why the other members of the front of the house staff couldn't get it right the first time. Once all perceived mistakes were rectified by the GM, the go-ahead was given to begin setting the napkins, silver, plates, glassware, candles, and flowers, all undoubtedly destined to be rearranged once the GM returned from his next task. Outside the floor, or the main area where guests dine, The GM and the spouse were also responsible for maintaining the room where wine was cellared and updating its inventory as a function of his added role of helping me cover the responsibilities of the former sommelier. The restaurant's collection of approximately 700 bottles was stored in five temperature-controlled coolers in a room that hosted our daily staff meal, and on rare occasions doubled as a private dining room. Shipments arrived daily and the menu's beverage pairings necessitated alternating inventory space on a weekly basis. So the GM tracked everything on a printed spreadsheet with a numeric system. For example, wine in the third cooler and 12 racks down was annotated 312 that was updated in pen. As it turned out, he and the spouse hadn't had a chance to conduct a complete inventory in months. So my next responsibility was to complete an entire update while the GM whisked away to ensure the table settings were perfected. Thankfully, annotating spreadsheets and performing basic arithmetic were already parts of my skill set, So I took some satisfaction in being able to meet his expectations on this particular assignment. Once the inventory was complete and the GM returned, we advanced to the patio to inspect the exterior of the restaurant. All the light bulbs were to be checked and replaced as needed, Gas in the heaters and fireplace was to be tested, windows and surfaces were to be polished, and plants were expected to be trimmed and maintained. Even details such as a leaf turning yellow, or pine needles, that were constantly falling throughout the day, appearing on the deck of the patio, were never to be overlooked. When doing yard work at home, the phrases, why are there yellow leaves on this plant, and sweep this shit off the patio, still echo in my mind. These were the details, as the GM often cited, that separated the good restaurants from the great. Being good was never enough, and as I came to understand over the time we worked together, the burden of greatness was a standard that weighed heavily on the GM. In the restaurant business, once you experienced excellence through a dish or via service, there was no substitute. It's an obsession in the world of fine dining. In no other aspect of the GM's duties was this philosophy more ingrained than attention to detail once the daily checklist was complete and dinner service began. Guest placement was pre-assigned and rehearsed not only by table number, but by their alternating seats in three different phases of the meal. Pronunciation of guest names, their titles, special occasions, dining preferences, and any allergies were all rehearsed. The way certain seats were served the manner in which particular dishes needed to be carried, the exact order and precise placement of every course were all prearranged. In coordination with our chef, descriptions of dishes and details about their sourcing, as well as preparation, were scripted and refined by the GM. Everything from clean-cut grooming and confident demeanor to proper pathways to walk in and prescribed responses to guest questions were all devised by the GM, So to see him personify his expectations of the staff on a daily basis was to see someone at the height of their abilities. To see the GM walk through the dining room with the agility of a cat, spot guest needs like a sniper, communicate nonverbally to us how to address them, all while clearing an entire table's doll-sized ceramic dishes in one hand, answering a question about an obscure detail relative to the current course's sourcing, and picking up two empty burgundy glasses without the guests even noticing was truly a sight to behold. I thought I had seen amazing service in my dining experiences, but to be on the other side of the table with the GM on your team was to know the answer to any question, and the answer was always yes. In turn, when the GM's father passed away, only a month into my training, there was never a hesitation on my part to accept his responsibilities in the short term. The opportunity to work with the GM and study his craft firsthand was one of the main reasons I decided to work in the restaurant. Once I started to understand what he personally sacrificed in order to commit his life in service to diners was truly inspiring. Covering his duties during the period he was absent, the only time in years that he had taken leave, was both an honor as well as a baptism by fire. Operating at full speed during the day, being a leader on the floor during service, and covering closing duties into the wee hours of the morning processing checks Printing checklists and going through elaborate lockup protocols was something few people on the planet could manage. I took immense pride in never bothering the GM during his absence, but it took every ounce of my willpower. Keeping up with the demands of the role that our chef and their spouse had grown to assume would be covered felt like crawling through glass, but by the grace of the restaurant gods, I made it to the other side of that scene from Die Hard, having proven myself as a survivor. The Spouse. If there was anyone who doubted my commitment to the restaurant after my brief performance as the GM stand-in, it was the spouse, who was eminently more capable and qualified than myself. Like our chef and the GM, she had spent her career in high-end restaurants, but I suspected her continued presence during service grew out of a commitment to her marriage rather than an insatiable calling. After 15 years helping run the restaurant, she originally told me as a friend, That her plan was to start distancing herself from working during service so she could focus on what she truly enjoyed. Tending their garden at home, arranging flowers, filling gift bags with fruit from their trees, and printing menus in the morning before the front of the house staff would arrive. The more distant she was from the restaurant's exacting protocols and interacting with guests, the better she felt. Not that the rest of us didn't feel the exact same way, But it was far more complicated for the spouse having to submit to our chef's demands during very audible arguments and then act like a bubbly host during dinner service. To make matters worse, I quickly became the symbol of anchoring the spouse to working on the floor, since it would take a significant amount of time to train me as an acceptable substitute for the sommelier. By the direction of our chef, the combination of the spouse and the GM, who technically had not completed sommelier training themselves, were to handle bottle service for the foreseeable future. They were directly responsible for teaching me volumes of knowledge, as well as how to imitate decades of experience until they could return to their preferred responsibilities. To the GM's credit, he developed several helpful training sessions on wine varietals and pouring etiquette that were hosted in the brief minutes following staff meetings. However, the spouse didn't see the point. In my opinion, she knew our chef's professional standards better than anyone and that learning it all on the fly was far too much for even the brightest of students to master in such a short period. She understandably seemed to feel trapped, performing an exhausting role in a Broadway production for an undetermined amount of time. Moreover, separating the personal from the professional proved difficult for us both. Rather than making the effort to work with me before service, she immediately grew irritated with the single two-minute lesson she taught me the entire year on the proper way to open a bottle of wine, and shifted to a more punitive method of snarling at me if I made the slightest of mistakes that were unbeknownst to me until she bit down. If I need your help, I'll ask for it, is a line that echoes in my mind as well as the oft-recited why the fuck are you walking dishes before winds down? The barbed hostility began during service, but after the first few weeks it bled into whenever our paths crossed during the day, when she would demonstrably greet everyone in the restaurant, with the exception of me. As longtime friends who bonded over being introverts and having sarcastic senses of humor, it was a tough time for us both having to navigate how to maintain the highest of standards with a quickly lowering morale. The day's mood during prep rested on the temperamental nature of our chef, but the harmony of an evening was critically signaled by the spouse's attitude when she arrived moments before service began. We never knew what to expect, so always brace for the worst, And there were several nights when she walked out in the middle of service, leaving us scrambling to recover. An apology or explanation the following day was never provided, and we knew wiser than to make the situation worse by pulling the scab off of a perceived wound. When I started working at the restaurant, the spouse used to play Saturday by the Bay City Rollers over the speaker system to get everyone in an upbeat mood, but after a few months the tradition gradually faded away. She wasn't happy, And we all knew it. As much as I tried to make amends and learn as much as I could about wine, she had made her mind up about my role in the restaurant. At best, I was going to be a temporary foster child in the restaurant's family. The expediter. The person I grew the closest to was responsible for expediting food during service and generally encouraging us to hurry up throughout the day. Think of a celebrity chef barking at everyone to get orders right and move as quickly as possible without the threat of a bite, and that's the expediter. He started as a dishwasher two years prior to my start, spending months in the dish pit making $8 a day while going through rehab at a group home. For nearly a year, he ran the cleaning crew until he finally got a chance to wear a secondhand suit and work in the front of the house helping clear tables. He had spent time in prison, and the experience had literally left its mark on his body In the form of tattoos of allegiance. He dealt a lot of drugs at an early age and had done even more, especially when it came to intravenous narcotics. So try to imagine the combined expression of earnest disappointment and restrained rage on his face when I showed up for my first day of service and he immediately realized I was going to be jumping him in the restaurant's hierarchy. Who's this fucking guy? The expediter said to the GM. We were nearly the same build, age, and appearance, minus the tattoos, so guests would regularly ask if we were brothers. We had clearly made life choices that were diametrically opposed, but had somehow ended up in the same place. On a surface level, the expediter was my death metal doppelganger. But over the course of our year together, we became as close to adopted family members as anyone else in the restaurant's family. When he and his wife moved into their first place, I brought them a couch from our spare room. When I learned his back had been killing him from sleeping on a futon after long shifts, I rented a truck and brought them our extra bed. When he finally got to the point with his ex when he could have his children for brief visits, we all went to the movies. When he finally completed his years of probation, we celebrated his sobriety and freedom like a newborn's birth. Watching the expediter slowly rebuild his life to reach a point of independence normally associated with a student going away to college was equal parts heartbreaking and inspiring. His life had been difficult, far more difficult than I could ever understand. One of his parents had introduced him to narcotics at an early age. His intelligence was appropriated to help sell drugs, and his addiction had ravaged every relationship he had ever valued. Dodging warrants for his arrest and spending time in prison where he was forced to racially affiliate himself in order to survive hadn't left him many opportunities to establish roots in a community and commit to sobriety. So seeing him embrace the opportunity that working in the restaurant offered was truly profound. Having served in the military and coached college speech students, I thought I had heard the boundaries of crude language and First Amendment rights, but the expediter wove a tapestry of obscenity on a daily basis that would make the father from a Christmas story blush. In the environment of the restaurant, as I've been told most kitchens operate, shit-talking is like a second language, or in the case of the expediter, A superpower. Within moments of his arrival, it would be loudly announced whether he had had sex that morning and how he performed, what his impressions were of last night's guests and who they amusingly looked like in popular media, as well as the meaning of the last song he heard on the way to work, invariably a metal song he would continue to sing pieces of throughout the day until we were all echoing the lyrics. Without the expediter, the restaurant was a monastic space in terms of noise. Music and talk radio were outlawed by the GM as distractions from work, so the expediter's colorful language and stories provided some much-needed comic relief to ease the tension associated with executing the items on our daily checklist with exacting precision. Beyond making sure items on the checklist were steadily accomplished during the afternoon and dishes were rapidly moving out of the kitchen during service, the expediter's duties generally centered on helping whoever needed an extra set of hands. Anything from leveling tables and folding napkins in the front of the house to cleaning the fryer and chopping onions in the kitchen, the expediter was the Swiss army knife in our chef's back pocket. As the adage goes, idle hands do the devil's work. So it made sense that the expediter found stability in the pace and intensity of fine dining. He had never dined in a restaurant like ours, but that wasn't the aspect that appealed to him. The work was his salvation." The expediter taught me how to accomplish all the odd jobs that he was tasked to figure out during his tenure. How to pick the locks to the office and bathrooms when they jammed. How to reach the uppermost shelves in the dining room from the top of a ladder with an extended feather duster. How to use a vacuum sealer to preserve leftovers from the kitchen. Where to set the sprinklers in the garden to achieve maximum efficiency. The delicate nuances of when to ask our chef for leniency or a favor. And the hundreds of protocols during service devised by the GM that were unique to the restaurant. Service was often like storming the beaches of Normandy and saving Private Ryan, so having someone like the expediter on your side kept everyone moving toward the machine gun nest with reassurance. When it became clear that my time at the restaurant wouldn't be long term, the expediter took the news the hardest. He marveled at how fast I could learn complex tasks memorize extravagantly detailed menus, and interact confidently with guests. You'd be awesome at prison, he once told me. You're so smart, you could run a store from your cell and get a flat screen, no one would mess with you. I took his words as a compliment. The longer we worked together, the more the expediter understood our chef's reasoning for hiring me as a floor manager. But he couldn't relate to having options beyond the solitary opportunity in their life that the restaurant symbolized. Even though he didn't have the passion of our chef, or the lifelong commitment of our GM, his loyalty was committed to serving the restaurant without question. Beyond the earshot of our supervisors, however, the expediter admitted that he wanted to quit on a regular basis. Every time our chef needled him with remarks like, get your head out of your ass, or the GM ridiculed his grammar whenever he said phrases like, I seen it, a flash of fury would spark in the expediter's eyes. It would be so easy to quit and fucking rob this place the expediter remarked to me on several occasions, but he always calmed himself with a known outcome if he did. In his words, it'd be all bad. As much as he sometimes loathed his duties as an indentured servant to the restaurant, he knew that he had finally found a home. The Busser The person everyone knew the least about was the Busser. It was possible he was actually older than the GM, but he never revealed his age. I can't recall a day when he didn't wear Jordan sneakers and a name-brand t-shirt to work like we were at basketball practice. He preferred the baggy look, even when it came to his suits, which were typically pinstriped like a mafioso. He kept his hair short and could never seem to decide whether to keep his mustache or not. The buzzer spoke English, but tended to avoid conversations out of a general disinterest and a habit of guarding his mystique like a character in a telenovela. He was from outside Mexico City in Huachanango and shared with me that he had crossed the border three times. He didn't say how, and I didn't think it was my place to ask. He worked the same hours I did, received a printed paycheck, paid taxes, and rented a humble apartment converted from a garage near the restaurant where I dropped him off after work. That was enough for me. On the weekends, he played soccer in a rec league and watched football in his favorite sports bar. With no spouse or children, he stuck to himself and led a fairly quiet life outside the restaurant. According to our chef, the busser had apparently come with the restaurant as the seller's loan stipulation that he would have to make sure that there was a job for him. Left with little choice, our chef accepted the deal. In turn, that meant everyone in the front of house, with the exception of the GM, had never worked in a fine dining restaurant before. In one respect, this worked economically for our chef, But from a perspective of quality control, there was an immense amount of training to be done. For example, the busser had no perception of why it was so important to have everything on the table aligned symmetrically with an inch of space between all items. After all, there's a fork, right? Wrong. Our chef was constantly on the busser's case for making the most minor of infractions, such as not fully closing a swinging bar door on the way to the dish pit because he was carrying a tray loaded with hundreds of dollars in glassware. How many fucking times do I have to bring this up at meetings? Close the fucking doors behind you! The busser had heard this on a weekly basis for nearly four years, so you can imagine that he developed a fairly thick skin when it came to our chef's barbs, but it was quite the opposite. Every night, when I drove the busser home, a role I inherited from the sommelier, he lamented how, it's never enough. Chef's wanting everything to be perfect, but there's too much to do. I'm marking all the tables, I'm pouring all the water, I'm doing hot towels, I'm clearing all the dishes, this shit is too much. In order to make up for his lack of polish and attention to detail, the busser was relegated to performing the majority of the tasks that the GM didn't have the time to accomplish and the expediter preferred not to do. The busser would usually start the day helping us set up the dining room, but as soon as there was a pause, he began cleaning the exterior of the restaurant by blowing pine needles off the roof and patio, hosing bird droppings off the patio and parking lot, washing the dozens of windows from both sides, and then moving all the metal patio furniture into place. If there was an opportunity to work alone, he relished it. Once I noticed his routine, I tried to lend him a hand in order to get to know the busser a little better. You want to help me fold napkins? He was bowled over by my interest in learning what he was doing and trying to help. No one's ever helped me fold napkins in four years. Here you go, amigo. Each part of the restaurant, and even some courses, was assigned special linen with exacting folds that the busser was responsible for accomplishing. An average of 24 guests per night times four different napkins plus rolling hand towels for the bathroom, as well as hot towels for guests at the beginning of service, added up to about 200 napkins each service. The linen came in stacks of 20 from the cleaner wrapped in plastic. The busser would take five stacks, push me five more, and I tried to match his pace. We folded a lot of napkins, usually in silence, but occasionally we bantered about our chef's mood that day. The guests we had the night before and the number of beverage pairings that were purchased for service that evening. When it came to beverage pairings, four meant we might finish early, but that was rare. The average was normally half the number of guests, and the busser was an expert at doing the math of how many glasses we needed to polish after service. 12 guests times eight pairings plus 24 guests times three rounds of water glasses and any additional beverage orders is about 175 glasses. Glasses were normally washed by the dish pit in racks of 4x4 or 5x5 before we polished them at the end of service. So the busser would tell us how many racks we would likely have that evening. Ah, shit, homie. We're gonna have 10 racks tonight. We won't be done till 12.45. You'll see. 10 racks meant our shift would go at least past 12 hours. More racks meant more time donated to the restaurant. We got paid per shift, not by the hour, So beverage pairings and the racks they created became our natural enemy in the ecosystem of the restaurant. It may seem easy enough in theory to quickly dry a glass and set it on a shelf like you probably do at home, but the busser had been chastised far too many times not to take the job seriously. Polishing glassware at our restaurant meant that every glass needed to look like new before it was placed on a tray and escorted back to its assigned shelf. If a glass was chipped in any way, it was discarded. If a glass had lipstick still left on it, It was washed by hand in the bar and redone. If a glass couldn't be held to the light and have zero trace of hard water spots from Phoenix water, it was polished again. We polished a lot of glasses, usually in silence, until the expediter would join us and banter about the night service would kick into high gear. Yo, chef was pissed tonight. There was only one note. Close the fucking bar doors. It was as if the entire service was a complete failure if our chef noticed the tiniest of infractions when it came to our discipline, and the years had taken their toll on the busser. Fucking chef, it's never enough. Why doesn't he notice how I clean everything outside? I wash all the windows, I fold all the napkins, I mark all the tables, I pour all the water, I clear all the table, it's too much. Unlike the expediter, the busser hadn't found a home in the restaurant. He lost it in a trade, and it appeared there was no way out of the deal. He was stuck, and the longer I spent in the restaurant, the more I began to feel the same way. We became hermanos. The kitchen. Traditionally, there's a clear division of labor and allegiance in restaurants, depending on whether you work in the front of the house, dining room, or back of the house, kitchen. While our chef was particularly adept at interacting with guests and happy to describe some of the courses himself, he was the unquestionable leader of Escoffier's Brigade de Cuisine, responsible for anything related to food products, storage, preparation, and presentation. In turn, the GM was the natural leader of the front of the house, or Maitre de responsible for everything from accounting and correspondence to maintaining the landscaping and ensuring the air conditioning ran properly. There was a literal threshold where the wooden floorboards of the dining room met the ceramic tiles of the kitchen, and crossing it meant you were venturing into potentially hostile territory. People in kitchens are among the hardest working members of society in terms of the length of time they spend physically working without breaks, mental focus needed to execute painstakingly detailed techniques, and emotional stability required to endure the constant verbal hazing. Polished appearance, presentation skills, and basic interpersonal abilities aren't generally their strong suit. So those qualities were associated with what our chef frequently referred to as the front of the house strut. When I started, the kitchen staff included our chef, the executive, his chef de cuisine, chief, a sous chef, deputy, a commie, junior cook, and a former dishwasher who became the garçon de cuisine, assistant. Whenever anyone from the front of the house went into the kitchen to help, they gravitated toward whoever treated them with an ounce of respect, because the norm for the kitchen staff was to constantly assert their role in the hierarchy in condescending fashion. Having known our chef the longest, I usually asked if he needed any help first, but he would routinely send me to assist the chief or deputy who were always behind in their duties. Running behind to our chef meant not accomplishing a task as fast as humanly possible, So failure to do so during the hundreds of tasks to execute in the kitchen meant that you were technically running behind by a matter of seconds or minutes. Are you still doing that? Was a common dig from the kitchen staff when it seemed to them like a task was taking too long. In turn, such pressure made asking kitchen staff the simplest of questions seem like an extreme nuisance to them at best, and at worst, the cause of mental breakdown. You know the way people stop walking in order to respond to a text message? That's what it's like asking someone in the kitchen who's in the middle of a task. Losing concentration meant losing time, and the clock was always ticking. Kitchen staff were expected to time themselves to learn how long it took them to perform tasks, such as mincing a shallot or breaking down a pineapple. They could then multiply that number for the amount of produce, as well as continue to try and beat their own times. There was always a way to do something faster, but the expectation was that you still used an optimal technique. Perfection. Requires repetition. When it came to peeling, paring, and chopping to create symmetrically perfect cubes for guests to consume, the kitchen staff were capable of magical sleight of hand. But if you asked them where the flour was stored, their mouth would gape as you could see the gears in their mind grinding to a halt before they could muster a vague direction of, uh, in the back. Being in the kitchen was always intense, but not without purpose. Execution at the highest level requires extreme discipline. So being a part of the hierarchy in the kitchen necessitates submitting to anyone more experienced, especially our chef. There was a reason his name was on the restaurant. He submitted years of his life to some of the most recognized chefs in history and successfully ran his own restaurants for 15 years. Challenging his authority was never an option. The kitchen, as the term brigade de cuisine implied, was our chef's small army that was trained to operate like a special forces unit executing a dinner service. Execute, execute, execute was a common phrase in the kitchen appropriated from the military. Perform your responsibilities as if lives were on the line in battle. Few people can thrive in such an environment, so it was with little surprise that less than two months into my time with the restaurant that the deputy was let go for turning to substance abuse as a method of managing the pressure and the commis moved on to a less demanding role at another location before her hair started to turn gray in her 20s. A career in the kitchen isn't for most people. It can grind the hardest of personalities into dust, but the few who endure gradually emerge as diamonds in the rough. To listen to our chef recount working for months on two broken ankles, scalding his feet with boiling water that sat in his sneakers while he finished the shift without medical attention, and noticing the scars from countless cuts and burns he had endured was more than a reminder of his mental and physical toughness. It was a testament to his discipline as a journeyman in the kitchen. There was nothing he hadn't accomplished or was willing to do in the kitchen, and that was the level of commitment he demanded from everyone around him. There was no other place he could possibly be in the world than in the back of the house refining his craft on a daily basis. The butler. If you haven't figured it out by now, I'm not the most stable of personalities, not to mention narrators, so it only seems fair to paint a similar portrait of myself from the perspective of my colleagues in the restaurant. The butler always arrived too early. It became obnoxious. I couldn't figure out if he was trying to make us look bad or was always hopped up on caffeine. You could tell he was in the military by the way he kept his hair short like it was a regulation. He always showed up in New Balance running shoes, suit pants, and an ironed white undershirt. At the start of the day, he was usually like some chipper character from Sesame Street, radiating positivity, but would quickly snap into playing the role of a cynical detective from The Wire as soon as things went sideways. They say that Mr. Rogers was a sniper in the Marines. I don't believe that, but for the butler, that didn't seem like it was out of the realm of possibilities. There was the network television version of him that guests saw during primetime, and the explicit, premium-channel version that we were watching after hours. I couldn't discern whether it was from his background in the military, or he needed some serious medication, but the man never had any chill. As our chef would say, he's one of the nicest people in the world. As a guest, maybe. But he can be a brooding bastard when something sets him off. Whether it's a discussion about the placement of a table, or an argument about who played the best James Bond, which was obviously Roger Moore, the butler has an opinion on the subject. He physiologically can't seem to keep his mouth shut when it comes to controversy. Most of the time, I actually agree with him. But it's the way he digs in and won't give up that's exhausting to be around. Honestly, my butt cheeks have never clenched tighter than when I've heard him talk back to our chef. It's like the man is riding into battle by himself, and the rest of us are watching through binoculars from the safety of a nearby hill, knowing he won't survive the climactic scenes from Braveheart. And when the spouse arrives... They're like the most passive-aggressive couple I've seen since high school. I don't know what the deal is between them, but they should text each other and break up so everything in the front of the house can go back to normal. The butler knew more than any of us about beer and could make a hell of a cocktail, but he's got a lot to learn about wine. Watching him try to open a bottle the proper way is like a child needing help to open a jar of pickles. I figured it would be easy for a guy who seems to memorize things so quickly to learn the process, but I guess everyone has their limits. I remember the first time the butler came in for service. He was only supposed to keep the bathrooms clean and maybe help us walk dishes to larger tables. By the end of the night, he was walking dishes on every course, making drinks, and polishing glassware like a champ. I can't knock the man's hustle. There was never a service when he was in the weeds. Did I see him mouth off to chef and have to go in the office for words? Yes. Did I see him unload on our chef de cuisine like a nuclear bomb at one of our daily meetings? Oh, yes. Did he come through whenever we needed him? Most definitely. To his credit, the butler had a way with words. Words that I had never heard before, but sounded pretty. Describing dishes, especially during meetings with chef, is one of the most stressful parts of service, but he made it seem so effortless. We would fidget with our hands, rock back and forth, and avoid eye contact with our chef like kids in a classroom. Meanwhile, the butler's sitting there like he's teaching a class, When we found out he was a professor, it all made sense. All brains and no common sense. He had to question everything instead of shutting up and getting the job done. And notes during meetings? It's like he couldn't stop himself from suggesting ideas that we all preferred he'd keep to himself, especially this whole concept of giving guests a tour. It was hard enough moving guests through three sections of the restaurant throughout the evening. Now we have to give everyone a tour with dishes planted along the way like Easter eggs? If we were characters in Clue, I wish I would have murdered the butler in the study with a wrench for that one. Having him in the front of the house made us stronger and more confident, but it also tested our patience. He was the only person who ever seemed to get to leave to go to places like Berlin or New York on business, leaving us struggling to find a substitute. But at least he always brought back menus for the kitchen and new ties for us. I have to say that the man's suit game was on point, but don't tell him that or it'll go to his head. Most guests loved him, but there were a handful of people who found him condescending, so there were a number of nights when we had to wave him off certain tables so the GM could diffuse any tension. I don't think it was ever his intention to come across like a snob or anything, he just couldn't keep his temper in check when guests would get demanding or downright disrespectful. It got better as the months went by, and I can remember him saying he had started taking medication to stabilize his mood But there was something deeply engraved in his temperament that wasn't sustainable in service. He was like a brother when it came to giving us everything he had on a nightly basis, but we all questioned how long he could last. Together, we all served as extensions of our chef's mind and body. His philosophy and vision became our mission. The chief, junior cook, and assistant were learning how to extend the reach of our chef's impervious hands hands that I saw reach into boiling water without hesitation, carry scalding pans across the kitchen oblivious to their temperature, and refuse to be cut by the sharpest of blades. Squinting through glasses, the GM was focusing on how to see our chef's vision of reaching perfection in the unforeseeable future. The expediter was always listening for sounds of dissent and allegiance to report back to our chef. The busser was perpetually walking to clean up the messes our chef didn't have time to address. The spouse was the person who guarded our chef's heart, and I was quickly becoming our chef's voice. Earnest in tone, excited to share the details of a course, and always ready with a witty remark. Our chef couldn't be in every place at once, but as parts of a body, we could.